Father, we ask that as we sit in your presence, that you would make us attentive to your voice. Father, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And we just pray, God, that you might use this time in your word to draw us deeper into that rest. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So this week is the end of our series we've been in over the last few weeks entitled Rhythm. So just by show of hands, how many of you guys have picked up that little rhythms booklet and have used it in some way, shape, or form? Uh, If you haven't, uh, there are rhythms guides in the back. If you're new and you're like, what's a rhythms guide? Well, this is a guide uh, for uh, Bible reading and prayer. And a lot of us have found it very helpful. So if you want to take, you know, some, some steps in the direction of cultivating some of these rhythms in your life, that's a great resource for doing that. But what we've been talking about throughout this series is what it looks like to habituate, to uh, orient the entire kind of like patterns and rhythms in our life around the practices that can shape and form us into becoming more and more like Jesus. In other words, every day we are becoming something by the choices we make and by the practices we engage in. And so what are some of those practices, what are some of those patterns that we can incorporate into our life that will mold and shape us into the likeness of Jesus? And that's the prime question that we've been asking throughout this series. And and throughout the series, we've looked at the rhythm of prayer and of scripture meditation and of silence and solitude and of corporate worship and last week on financial generosity. And today, as we conclude our series, we want to talk about the rhythm of rest. So I want to talk to you about rhythms of rest. So does anybody here ever at any point in your life feel exhausted? You know, we are just busy people, right? Every week, it seems like after church, I talk to you guys and I have a conversation that goes like this almost every single week. I say, how are you? And you say, oh, I'm doing well. I'm just really, really busy. And, and, and you ask me, and I tell you the same thing. In fact, somebody said to me, they said, Josh, uh, I see you walking up the street, but you always look like you're so busy. And to me, that sounds like music in my ears because it sounds like an affirmation in American culture. Like, thank you very much. I am busy. I'm important. And I'm significant. And my life has worth and meaning and value because I am so busy. I mean, when was the last time you asked somebody how they're doing and they just said, you know, I just don't have a whole lot going on right now. And I find myself oftentimes bored. I don't know really what to do with myself. And so I'm just medicating the mediocrity of my life with red wine and donuts and Netflix. I mean, nobody answers like that, right? And it's because we all want to sound busy. We feel like, you know, um, you know we, we want, and we are busy. You know, we're busy at work. You know, we Americans work more hours and take less vacation days than any other industrialized nation in the world. Uh, we work 169 hours more a year than Japan. Now, just think about that for a minute. Uh, we, we work 400 more hours per year than the British, 460 more hours than the Germans. I heard that and I thought, what are they doing? Why don't they get to work, you know? And, um, but of course, it's not just 
that we work at work uh, because of iPhones, you know, because of our smartphones and our uh, time-saving technology, which has become another appendage on our bodies, work is bleeding into every aspect of our lives. It's alerting us at the dinner table and in church. You know, some, some people even check text messages in church. No, nobody in this church, but there are some awful Christians that do that. The price of Bitcoin or... <laughs> Stocks. Some of you checked already this morning during the last song. You're like, when is this thing going to end? We're going to check the price of stock. But of course, we don't just work at work. We carry around our work with us in our front pockets. And it's not just our work. We are keeping busy with our kids' schedules, with dance and soccer and band and recitals and, um, and, and homework. And, and this is just the way we operate as Americans, Right? And it's not just the, that, that we're bringing our work home. Oftentimes, what's exhausting to us is the work of home. You know, if you've got small children in your house right now, that is just tiring. It's a tiring season of life. I remember watching the comedian Jim Gaffigan talk about what it was like to move from three to four children. Somebody had asked him that, and he said, well, if you can imagine this, imagine that you're out in the ocean and you're drowning, and then somebody throws you a baby. That's what it's like to move from three to four children. And it can just be exhausting. And it's not just work. Actually, our vacations and our dinner out and our hiking adventures are also exciting, exhausting, because we, we've, got to, we, we've got to document the experience. We've got to take pictures, and then we've got to edit them, and then we've got to upload them and present them. And then after they've been presented, we've got to check and see, did people like it? Did they comment on it? And that starts to become exhausting. And then, and then for many of us, you know, people are just exhausting. You know, you have friend drama, and that's just exhausting, and roommate drama is exhausting, and your parents fighting, it's just internally exhausting, and, and how your kids are doing, that's exhausting. And, and then a lot of us, we just have a lot of stuff going on inside of our heads, and it just seems like our minds never stop. We, we go to bed at night and we're thinking about those problems we have been agonizing about during the day. And we wake up and we're thinking about the same thing. And, and we have this ongoing kind of loop in our head that we are not enough. We're not good enough. We're not thin enough. We're not successful enough. And, and we didn't say the right thing and, or we said the wrong thing and we're embarrassed about it or we did the wrong thing. And some of us, we, we walk around and we carry loads of guilt and shame over what we've done. And that is just exhausting. And, and there's just so much in this, in this life that is so exhausting. You know, as A.J. Swoboda, in his brilliant book on Sabbath, who said this, he says, we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, and malnourished people in history. And like a lightning bolt from heaven, the word of Jesus breaks into us with this invitation. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. And so to our weary and exhausted selves, Jesus speaks this word of promise. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Does anybody out there want a little bit more rest in your souls? 
mental rest and physical rest. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. But what does that even mean? You know, you you think, well, I came to Jesus a long time ago and I still don't feel rest. You know, I still feel mental and physical and emotional and spiritual exhaustion. You know, I I responded to this call 20 years ago at some, you know, uh, evangelistic event. And the the, the preacher said uh, these words to me. He said, come to Jesus and he will give you rest. And you said, I came to Jesus and I still haven't fully lived into that rest. How How can I experience this rest? What is Jesus even talking about here? And what does it mean to experience his rest? And how can we work more of that experience of the rest of Jesus into the actual experience of our lives? And that's the question I want us to talk about today. And and I want to suggest that Jesus's invitation for us to enter into his rest involves at least three things. And I want to talk about each one of them as kind of what it means to enter into this rhythm of rest. So number one, the rest that Jesus offers, number one, involves a weekly rhythm. It involves a a weekly rhythm. Look back at the text again. Notice Jesus says, he says, come to me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you will experience rest. And then the text ends and in the very next section, there are two stories. And those two stories that follow this promise of rest are both about Sabbath. And so Jesus in this text is connecting the idea of Sabbath to the idea of rest. And so in the next story, Jesus is plucking grain and the Pharisees, of course, are closely watching him. And then a little bit later, uh, there's another story about Jesus and he is healing on the Sabbath. And over the course of these two stories, Jesus makes these statements about the Sabbath. He says it is lawful to do good on Sabbath. And then he says, Sabbath, uh, man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. And then he says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And I think by connecting this promise of rest with the idea of Sabbath, Jesus is connecting something for us. He's saying, look, one of the things that it means to enter into the rest of Jesus is to enter into the practice of Sabbath. Now, if you're gonna understand what that means, though, you gotta understand a little bit about what Sabbath is all about. Because Jesus comes into the world out of the world of Judaism, and within the Jewish mind and imagination, Sabbath observance and practice was just a regular part of their lives. And so what, 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 what do we need to know about Sabbath? Well, the, the, the practice of Sabbath was introduced to Israel in the very first opening section of the Bible in the account of creation. And in that account, on each day, there is a different act of creation. And there are six days or six panels or six periods of creation. And there is day one and God creates and then he says it's good. And then day two, God creates and says it's good. And then day three, God creates and says it's good. And then day four, God creates and says it's good. And then day five, God creates and says it's good. And then day six, God creates and says what? He says it's, no, he says it's very good. And so, so, so God, after he's done with all of his creation, though, the very crowning act of the creation week is Sabbath. 
and it says this, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of the work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So a little bit later in the book of Exodus, we see the Sabbath command arise again. And on that occasion, it comes after the instructions for building the tabernacle. So if you've ever read the book of Exodus, uh, you know it begins with a bang. You know, there is uh, plagues and there's shock and awe and uh, the children of Israel get taken out of Egypt and they cry free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And then God takes them to Mount Sinai and they're on Mount Sinai. He gives them a bunch of moral laws and he also gives them instructions for building the tabernacle. And that's where the the book gets a little bit dry for some of us, and it gets a little bit laborious uh, because the instructions for building the tabernacle read something like the instructions for building a piece of furniture from Ikea, and it's very detailed, and there's the whole instruction. And, um, but but if, if you don't take time to read that section, you miss something important. There are six speeches that God gives about the instructions to build the tabernacle, just like there were six days of creation. And then the seventh speech, just like the seventh day of uh, the original creation, is a word about Sabbath. And in in that seventh speech about Sabbath, God essentially says this, if you don't take Sabbath, it's gonna kill you. And then he follows that up by saying this, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And when it says he rested and was refreshed, it's an interesting phrase, that, that little phrase, and was refreshed. Uh, it's, a, it's a verbal form of a noun that is very common in the Bible. And that's the noun soul. And so, you know, in the Psalms, it says things like this, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And all throughout the, the Old Testament, there's this word soul that is used. And it's always used as a noun, except for three times it is used in a verbal form. And this is one of those. And it essentially means to be resold. You know, uh, a few years ago, I took a pair of shoes that I have into the little local shoe store down here on Baldwin Ave. You gotta love Old Town Sierra Madre. It's just like Old Town USA. There's a shoe store. You're just like, how does that guy stay in business? He resold shoes, but there he is. And he, and he, but, but my soul was worn out on my shoes and I had to go and they replaced it. They had to resole my shoes. And what this text is saying is that sometimes your soul gets spent and you need to be resold. And the surprising thing about this text is it's a description of God. God himself got resold. You know, God, uh, at the end of his week of work, he, he didn't go into the office. You know, he ceased from his work and he was refreshed. Now, of course, uh, this text is using anthropomorphic language. And that's just simply a fancy way of saying that it is using human language to describe the action of God so that we humans can know something about the kind of action and inaction we should take. And what it wants to teach us is that if God worked and rested and was resold, then you need, after you work, to rest and become 
resold. You need to resold because when you get resold, you get your life back again. You know, it's fascinating. On the week of creation, after God, cre- after he, he, he rests on the Sabbath, it says that God blessed the Sabbath, which is an interesting thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You think, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to bless a day? You know, because earlier in the text, there are two other objects of God's blessing. The first are the animal creation. God blesses the animals. And then the second are God's human creatures. God blesses the humans. And do you know what the result of the blessing of God is? It is fertility and it is life-generating, productive sort of capacities. And do you know what I think it's saying by uh, making the statement that God blessed the Sabbath? I think it's saying that when we honor this rhythm of work and rest, when we treat this space of time sacred and we cease from our work, that we can find in that space something that regenerates life within us. And so he's calling us, he's inviting us into a weekly rhythm. But what exactly does that mean? Well, the word Sabbath simply means to cease or to stop work. And I think what this is inviting us to do is to say, look, there is a place for your production and there is a place for shopping and for scrolling and for thinking and for agonizing and for scheduling and for planning, which makes up a lot of our lives, right? But there is a time when you need to stop and you need to let it go. And you need to recognize that you can stop and life will go on. You know, it was Abraham Joshua Heschel, guy who's got an amazing middle name. But he said this, Sabbath is the day we say farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without our help. Did you know that the world will keep going on if you stop worrying for a day? You can give yourself permission. You can say, look, because sometimes you think like, it's like you think you're juggling and the way you keep kind of like life moving forward is you keep agonizing and worrying about it. That's the only way it'll keep going on, you know? And if you stop your, your worry and the anxiety and the thinking about it, if you just release it for a second, everything's gonna fall apart. And Sabbath is the day we say, no, it will not. God is on the throne still. God is the infinite and eternal one, and he will keep his world going. Sabbath in this way is an act of resistance. It is our refusal to be identified by productivity and acquisitiveness. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, put it like this. He says, the market wants us to be exhausted because exhausted people make terrific shoppers (laughs) and spectators and couch potatoes. Exhausted people do not make for transformers in the community. Rested people are dangerous, though, on behalf of the community. But of course, this doesn't just mean simply that you work hard and you play hard. I think that Sabbath is getting at a particular kind of rest, a rest that involves delight and enjoyment in God's creation and in God's self and in the good people God has put around you. Sabbath is not simply about binging Netflix. Sabbath is about delight and enjoyment in the good gifts of God in creation. 
Now, someone says, well, if I just stop my work, though, and I, I, stop, and I stop producing, and I say, that just feels so selfish, you know? But listen, your friends, your family members, your neighbors, they need you to be rested, well-rested, and, and to find joy in life. Because if you don't, you don't have a rested self and a joyful self to invest in them. Someone says, well, you know, you know, I'll rest when I get to heaven. Well, if that's your attitude, you're going to get to heaven a lot sooner. I, or I had a friend, he said, he said, well, you know, the devil never takes a rest. Well, yeah, that's why the devil's the devil, you know? He never gets a nap. He's mean and cranky, you know? And so are you if you don't take rest. And so, number one, I think Jesus is inviting us into a rhythm of life. He's saying, look, don't resist the rhythm that God has built in the very fabric of creation. Sabbath was actually created for humanity. Sabbath was made for us as a gift from the hand of God so that we might experience God's goodness and his grace and delight. You know, I was reading yesterday uh, the great uh, uh, Jewish scholar and thinker, Abraham Joshua Heschel's book on the Sabbath. And he makes this point that reminded me of Hobbit's he said, you know, he said, Sabbath is, it's not so much that Sabbath exists for the purpose of your productivity and your acquisitiveness during the week. It's not so much that you rest so that you can get back into work. It's more that you work so that you can enter into the delight and joy of God's good world that he has created. And it reminded me of Hobbits because I think about Hobbits, you know, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings I'm sorry if I quote and refer to the Lord of the Rings too much. It's just, I don't, I don't have that many cultural references. Um, I just don't watch that much TV. You know, it's like the Great British Baking Show or it's um, the Lord of the Rings. I don't got much else, right, Jonathan? And Boba Fett. And all things Star Wars. It's not that bad, Boba Fett. Okay, I'm gonna, quick, quick. But hobbits go on this long, arduous journey to throw the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom. And the purpose of that was so that they could actually enjoy the good gifts of living in Hobbiton. Friendship and fellowship and food and delight. And this is Sabbath. Sabbath is about entering into the joy and the delight of God's creation. It's about enjoying God's good world. And so number one, this is an invitation for us to put into our lives a pattern of work and rest. Now, that doesn't mean that your day of rest has to be Sunday or Saturday. You know, I'm a pastor, and so I'm typically not resting today. This is my, this is my biggest work day of the week. Your, your day of rest, it might be Wednesday or Thursday. And it might mean taking space in a day to pause and just take an hour and to shut down the phones and to take away, you know, the online shopping and all the stuff that you do to frenetically, you know, keep feeding yourself. And you just pause and you rest in the good gifts and the good presence of God. But if you don't do this, you are going to lose your soul. And so number one, Jesus is inviting us into a rhythm of rest. But second, Jesus's invitation doesn't just involve a rhythm. It's not just about a weekly rhythm. Jesus's rest involves something more. It actually involves a way of life. Notice again, back in the text, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
And these two phrases, come to me and take my yoke upon you, are parallel because they are implying that they are discussing the same thing. In other words, the way into the rest of Jesus is to take upon yourself the yoke of Jesus. But what does that mean? You know, if you know anything about yokes in the ancient world, uh, a yoke is a sim- it's essentially a, an, it's an instrument of work. It's an instrument of work that you use in order to make the rest of your work lighter. You can do more. You can carry more when you have a yoke. And, uh, and then this guy, he just, he's not just carrying a yoke. He also is yoked. If you, he's chiseled and cut, you know, anyway, I'm sorry. But it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And the way you get rest is I'm going to give you an instrument for doing work. You know, you'd think Jesus would say, come to me and I will give you and take my mattress upon you, right? (laughs) Come and just lie down. But no, he says, come and take my yoke upon you. Frederick L. Bruner puts it like this. He says, Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens and we cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Now, understand what he's talking about there. You see, Jesus, he's not being, this is not a platitude. This is not just some aphorism, you know, come and and I'll experience rest. And then we all come to church and we nod our heads and listen to it. And then we go off and we're like, yeah, I guess he says rest, but I don't experience it in my life. And it's because Jesus isn't simply giving an aphorism. Jesus is inviting us into a way of life. In the ancient world, the the idea of a yoke was an idiom that spoke of the teaching, the ethical way of life that a master teacher would give to their disciples. So the yoke was the teaching of the rabbi. And when you took that yoke upon you and you embodied that in your own life, you began to feel like, wow, this is actually changing my life and it's making it so much better. And Jesus's yoke is his ethical way of life, an ethical way of life that is embodied preeminently in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, look, when when you... When you let your yes be yes and your no be no, when you don't live out of a false self, you don't have to continually try to wonder whether or not I'm presenting that false self. When there's integrity and wholeness to you, when you are being faithful in your covenants, and when you are are reconciling where there has been pain and fallout, when you are loving not just your friends, but also your enemies, and you're not putting more hate and and vitriol and toxicity into the world, when you actually are living into this, when you are not doing your deeds of righteousness to impress other people, but you're actually drawing near to God in prayer to meet with God, and you're fasting to feast on God, and, and, and you're giving to generously invest in the work of God. And when you're not judging people and you're taking the log out of your own eye so that you can help others with the speck in their eye, and when you're asking and seeking and knocking, when you're engaging in this way of life, it does something to bring an ease to your life. 
You know, in his book, the, or in his book, um, the Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard opens that, that book by talking uh, about uh, something that he calls in this chapter, uh, the secret of an easy yoke. He talks there about the cost of discipleship. And he says, certainly discipleship has a cost. But then he turns it on its head and he says, there's also a cost of non-discipleship. There is a cost you pay in, in your own soul when you don't walk in the way of Jesus when you seek your own way of doing marriage and relationships and family, when you, when you deal with conflict by holding on to bitterness and grudges and unforgiveness and you bear all that in your own soul, when you, when, when you nurse grudges, when you, when you, when you head, hold on to your petty angers, when you're greedy and acquisitive, like that actually creates something inside of you that disturbs your soul. And so Jesus says, in Brody, my way of life, and he, and he says, and you begin to find rest for your souls. It's not simply enough to work hard and play hard, to work six days and take a day of rest if the rest of your life you have not reorganized around the way of Jesus. You know, it, it, in, but it's not just an ethical way of life. It's an ethical way of life that comes out of a center that is rooted in the love of God. You know, how is it that you can ever let your yes be yes and your no be no? That you can give more of your resources away? That you're not angsting over how you look and how you present and uh, whether or not you said the right thing? How is it that you can, you can experience that kind of ease? Well, it's only when your own heart and your identity and your self-worth is rooted in the love of God. And so Jesus is saying, look, come to me and learn a way of life and root your heart in my love, and you will find security, and you will find that out of that love grows wellness and wholeness and rest. But, but again, this, this is not something that you go home today and you're gonna go do this week and bam, it's just like, oh, I got the rest, you know, I got the ethical way of Jesus down. I, I was wondering what I should do. And the pastor told me, uh, just practice the way of Jesus as described in the Sermon on the Mount and have your heart fully and completely rooted in the love of God and you will find rest. And you're like, cool, I did that on Monday. What am I gonna do with the rest of my week? You know, that would be like me, you know, I, I love surfing, watching some professional surfer paddle into, uh, you know, a 15-foot set at Pipeline, which is like one of the gnarliest waves on the planet, breaking over about two feet of sharp coral reef. And I watch a guy, you know, paddle in just smoothly as the wave is just beginning to pitch and he drops down this more than vertical drop and he just lands at the bottom and he pulls up, you know, backside and the wave just flies over and he lifts open his hands and I'm like, I want to do that. And then I paddle out there and I die, right? Because I need to learn some stuff over the long course in my own body about the right way to paddle and stand up. And, and, and we need to get God's love rooted deep into the fabric of our very being. And that takes a long course of obedience in the same direction. So again, what Jesus is inviting us into is to take his, his, his yoke and say, trust me with your life. Engage in these rhythms. 
break away from the bondage to productivity and acquisitiveness and distraction that we are in bondage to in this culture and come and take my yoke upon you. So he's inviting us into an entirely different way of life. And so number one, Jesus says, come to me and know my rest. He's number one, inviting us into a weekly rhythm. But more than that, it's a weekly rhythm that is accompanied by an alternate way of being in this world that we are learning, that we are practicing, that we are seeking to walk into together, that is a long obedience in the same direction. So his invitation involves a weekly rhythm. It involves a way of life. By the way, well, there's one more. Can I, I was going to go to my third point. You heard me. I was just like moving along. And then I looked down on my notes and I realized I forgot to say something to you that was really good. But it was good because it didn't come to me. So come for me. So I was reading this last week an interview or, uh, with um, John Ortberg. And John Ortberg was a pastor up in uh, Menlo Park, and he also, at one point, was a pastor at Willow Creek Community Church in, you know, big, successful churches, successful pastor, brilliant preacher, communicator, author. And he got to a point in his life where he was just about ready to, he was just utterly and completely spent and burnt. And so he went on a sabbatical, a long three-month sabbatical. And while he was at that sabbatical, he recovered some of the rhythms of Jesus in his life that brought him rest and restoration of his soul. And when he was completed with his sabbatical and he was driving basically back to work, he began to worry that when he got back to his life as a pastor of a megachurch, he was going to get just back into the grind again. He was like, I'm just going to be burned out all over again. And so what did he do? Well, he called his dear friend and mentor, Dallas Willard, and he asked Dallas, he said, Dallas, I'm, I'm going back and I feel like I've recovered my own soul, but I don't want to lose it again when I get back into the grind. What should I do? And Dallas paused for a long time. And then he said this. He said, you must arrange your days so that you are, not experience, so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. He says, you must organize your day so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. And, and he, he began to ask, you know, well, how do I do that? What does that look like, you know? And then he came back and he said this. He said, the main thing you will give your congregation, just like the main thing you will give to God, is the person you become. And it's true that the main thing you will give children or grandchildren or your neighbors or the world is the person you are becoming. And if your soul is unhealthy, you can't help anybody. You don't send a doctor with pneumonia to care for patients with immune disorders. You and nobody else are responsible for the well-being of your own soul. So he's inviting us He's challenging us to cultivate these rhythms in our life that actually refresh our soul, to learn practices of an ethical life and practices of the spiritual life that help root our life in God. So it involves a weekly rhythm and a way of life. But thirdly and finally, and actually quickly, Jesus's rest involves a personal relationship with himself. 
Listen to how the message translates this text. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and rightly. Jesus says, come to me. And he's inviting us there not simply into a way of life. He doesn't just give us his teaching. He doesn't just give us his practices. He doesn't just give us a weekly rhythm. Jesus gives us God's very self. You know, Abraham Heschel, in speaking of the Sabbath, he said, this is how the, he, the, he said, this is how the Jews view the Sabbath. He says, out of the days through which we fight and from whose ugliness we ache, we look to the Sabbath as our homeland, as our source and our destination. And I think what we discover in Jesus is that Jesus is our Sabbath because Jesus is our homeland and our source and destination. You know, when Jesus says in the next passage that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that is a massive claim. Because in the Old Testament imagination, there is only one Lord of the Sabbath, and that was Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, that infinite source of being and existence and love. And Jesus says, I am the God who you meet in the Old Testament. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And if you want to experience rest, it comes fundamentally from me. You know, you might be here and you might, you might have just started coming in the last six months or you're new to Christianity. I just want to say this to you. Christianity is not simply about church attendance. It's not about turning over a leaf, a better leaf and becoming a better person. Christianity fundamentally is about a relationship with the true and living God that comes to us by grace through Jesus Christ. And if you have been walking with Jesus for six years or for 60 years, the same truth is also needs to be spoken to us. Christianity is not about church attendance. It's not simply about trying to become a better person. Christianity is fundamentally about a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ that comes to us by grace, that God has made accessible to us, that we lay hold of, though, that we grasp a hold of through the regular practices we engage in throughout the week. That's why the rhythms we've been talking about for the last six weeks, these are not works that we do to earn favor with God. These are rhythms of grace, practices whereby we avail ourselves to that grace and that relationship and that power of God that is so readily accessible to us. And so he's inviting us into a deeper relationship with God. Now, it is, it is my prayer. I, I'm just going to close this series with just a pastoral word, if that's okay with you. <laughs> Listen, it is my hope that this series doesn't simply give you more information and more Bible teaching. I do hope and pray that this series spurs you on to engage in new practices in your life. 
And we provided that little booklet for those of you who are not doing that, and you would like to, just as a ready resource. And I've been engaging in that booklet. It's helpful for me. I am like you guys. I sometimes get bored, or I get distracted, or I get lazy when it comes to cold. Like, I, I'm, I'm no different than you all. And I need practices, and I need these rhythms. But just don't miss this. These rhythms do nothing other than help us grab a hold of God's grace that is readily available to us in Christ. A grace that we are too readily distracted from by our incessant, you know, kind of like addiction to all of our technologies and all of our social media and everything else, all our entertainment, our work and everything. These are practices that help us resist being in bondage to stuff that's going to kill our life. And it's my hope and prayer that we can be a community that is marked preeminently by a practice of the presence of God and of the grace of God and the love of God. That this is not a game to us. This is not simply a religious thing we do. But it actually is simply our response to the God who has made himself available to us in Christ. And it is us seeking after God and seeking to cultivate that life with God. And so may God enable us by his spirit to become more and more that kind of community. Amen? Let's close together in prayer. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your grace to us. And Father, we would confess to you that so many of us feel so far off from this lived experience of rest and Sabbath and grace. And we just ask, oh God, that by your spirit that you would wake us up afresh. Father, we pray for awakening in this community for spiritual light to break into our hearts and our minds. That this would not be a game, it would not simply be some religious thing we do. God, but that we would be a community that hungers and thirsts after you, that seeks first your kingdom and your righteousness, that truly lives into the way of Jesus as learners, as apprentices of Jesus. God, help us to be that community, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.